Hello, and welcome to Fireside with VC. My name is Andrew Romans, and I'm very happy to have my old friend, who I've known watching his entire VC career unfold before me in the world, is Nikolai Wadstrom. Nikolai, good to see you. Good to see you. Thank you for having me. So Nikolai, um, I want you to give your own background because it's too much for me to say, but I think general partner, co-founder of Bootstrap Labs, which is an artificial intelligence venture capital investor based in Silicon Valley. Um, Nikolai, why don't you give a, a quick background of what you did before and uh, when you started uh, with Benjamin pulling together uh, Bootstrap Labs? So uh, put me in box. I'm a kid that learned how to program very young. And by 15, I made extra money building software. And by my 20, 20s, uh, early 20s, I dropped out of university to build a real company with co-founders. So that was kind of too fun to not keep doing. So I spent most of my life as a technology entrepreneur, uh, building one thing after another. Some worked out, some did not. Uh, one went public, um, went through different areas from enterprise software to computer games. We did virtual reality in the mid nineties, different time, expensive silicon graphics machines to make that work at the time. Okay. Um, and then over the years, I, uh, I, uh, Started to, do, started to do angel investments, I think 2004, maybe, in parallel to this. And after a couple of years of that, it went really well, but I, I also realized that I wanted to build something more of a platform doing this. You know, one person is not an army. And, and you, I guess this entrepreneurial, you know, drive kicked in for the venture aspect or investing aspect of what I was doing. So I decided to launch Bootstrap Labs in San Francisco 2008. Um, and been building it up since then. And, then and actually by the way, you, you give away your age a little bit when you talk about a SGI box, the old purple Silicon <laughs> Graphics, Jim Clark thing. But um, so so was it just you and Benjamin originally? As no, it was just me originally. Oh, just you in 2008. Okay. Yeah. And, and no external investors. Uh, it was my money. I, I took, uh, you know, from the, the company I went public and other, other money I made all in build an investment model that way and felt pretty good to not have other investors involved actually to be honest i have raised a lot of venture <laughs> capital for my own companies over the years um a lot of things to figure out and uh, you know i moved i was even though i had american roots my grandfather was an american but i grew up in in sweden in europe uh so i moved across the globe trying to do something new even though i spent a lot of time in the bay area over the years before this and uh, it was a lot of new things and it felt good to be just focused and not have a lot of investors and others involved at that point. And then over time, it grew. Uh, ben, a really good friend, there was a great juncture a couple of years into it for him to join in a co-founding capacity. And then, then we've been building since then together. And then about- So when did you join forces with Ben? So Ben joined, I think it was 2012. 2012, okay, okay. And, uh, and then 2015, we decided to both focus solely on, um, on artificial intelligence, but also build more uh, institutional type venture capital funds. We figured out a lot of things. We built a model and a network to, to drive a lot of value to support entrepreneurs, which was being an entrepreneur, one of the key things why I'm doing this at all was that I, want, I, you know, I wanted to create the best partner for great entrepreneurs to build great companies. I wanted to create the partner that I would like to have as an entrepreneur. Um, so we worked pretty hard on figuring out a lot of things in the beginning in those years, 
uh, and work quite well, but we also realized we're building too small exposures to what we're doing. So we need to build a little bit larger funds and more scale to what we did, enhance a little bit more institutional type venture capital funds. And then uh, from then, uh, we, we kept investing in AI space. This was early before there was a lot of bust around this. Uh, we also launched a conference uh, where we brought this larger community that we're building together, so kind of the tip of the iceberg, once a year, the Bootstrap Lab Supplied AI Conference. Uh, and, and building this out, the model work has been working incredibly well of, of driving access to deal flow, uh, to talent, and you know, the thought leadership model of, through the conference and the community uh, really helped differentiate us, I think, uh, of driving both access to talent and deal flow. Uh, and now and, we are- in I think a lot of a lot of your story or successful fundpreneur, it's cool for entrepreneurs to hear about it or people that are thinking if they were to leave their venture firm or start one from scratch, you know, are there any, you know, actionable things that are repeatable that you've done with the event that you're doing, the applied AI AI event? Did, I thought you were doing that before the fund. Was that before the fund or did you, you started raising LP outside other people's money first? And then the event became so, part of your your your. We had a blind pool before we, we launched the conference, uh, but we decided to focus solely on AI. And yeah, you know, actually, we started raising that fund, and at the same time, we realized that there was actually no conference around AI that talked about how it was being applied and how that impacts society, organizations, and people. There was a lot of great places to go, like Nvidia had their tracks of. Or get together and, and you know to talk about how you build machine learning models. There was NIPS, there was things like that, but not how it was applied. Um, and and well, and even those conferences were small because it was not really a mainstream bus around AI. It was pretty. Niche. So how many people were at these events? And I, th I thought you were doing it more than once a year, but maybe you had some smaller so, ones. Yeah, exactly. So we have the annual conference. It's small. It's five, 600 people. We kind of cap it at that. It's a head start okay. conference. Okay. Uh, and then every, so this is when there's not a pandemic, we've been really mindful. We don't want to make a poor online version of these conferences and events, but we've been doing the annual one uh, every year as, as you know, you, you, you've been there a few times. Um, so, so you've seen it. And, and um, then every quarter, we, we tend to do a thematic focus, AI being applied into a certain, one of the, the core themes that we focus on. Um, and that's been going, and, and during the pandemic, we, we kind of, we didn't really do these types. We, we did other formats virtually that work well, you know, more informal things. Um, okay. So yeah. Okay, and I didn't, I didn't want to cut you off. I just wanted to jump in and understand, you know, how you blended events. I mean, like in China, events is part of the playbook on every VC on, you know, getting domain expertise around the buzzword that they've been offered capital for, you know, yeah. and being the center of a super node and a network that is all whatever the buzzword is, that there's money available to those you know, emerging managers. Um, so I always thought it was cool that you're doing that. Um, so, so maybe talk about raising the first LP capital. How did you get the first person to write a check or wire money into your bank account to invest in startups on their behalf? You know, you know, what, what, what did that look like? Is it this one? 
the first AI more institutional fund wasn't the, the really the first one, or the first a little bit larger one with, with bigger tickets and different type of investors. Um, well, and I have to say, like if you're thinking about giving advice to people that are spinning out from established venture capital firms, um, I think both you and I know that it's a quite a different journey if you don't if you haven't been at Sequoia kind of Perkins and you try to build a fund. Uh, I realize today that bootstrapping a venture capital fund, like we kind of done, both, both of us, people don't really do that, right? But, uh, so, <laughs> you know, it's been an interesting journey for sure. But, you know, the, the thing I, what we did was we reached out to the wider network and, and actually, I think you'll appreciate this. So Ben and I, we were brainstorming about because we decided we need to raise a little bit more of a, you know, larger funds and more institutional type funds. And then, you know, we learned a lot of things and then like, we need to find a focus. We also need to figure out who will resonate with this. So we actually literally embarked on kind of like a world tour. We, we actually ping people in the wider network and community around us and saying, hey, we're gonna be in Singapore this day. We love, we, we're hosting a dinner. We like to meet and get together. Uh, so we went to Singapore, Hong Kong, Shanghai, Stockholm, London, uh, we didn't go to Oslo, but Zurich, then um, New York, and then of course San Francisco. Um, and in that, you know, we we went out to the existing network, and people know people, and they like what they heard, and you know, these are people that trust us and know us, but say, well, you know what? I really like what you you are planning to do with this fund, and and I know you trust you, so you should talk to these people right now. Uh, and that way we found our initial group of LPs basically, right? So, so the going out and just talk to people about what we're trying to achieve um, and also listen a lot, what people were interested in, in, in uh, being part of, right? Yeah. And also I think you, you were, like you said uh, a minute ago, uh, coming up with as a entrepreneur who had received venture capital, what would I want to see in a venture firm that adds value to me beyond the check that they're writing? Right, yeah. and you know, in some of the community you've brought around, and even some of the corporates you've brought in, you know, begins to differentiate beyond just Nikolai and Ben, of yeah. you know, you know, the identity of the firm. Yeah, and I, I think to me that was really important to like that's what you know, as I mentioned, one of the reasons I'm I'm doing this at all, uh, and and actually the humble realization, I you know, there's some things I know really really well. There's a lot of things I don't know, and. And entrepreneurs we invest in, they need to get access to all the stuff that I don't know, right? So being really humble about that and, 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 and you know, how do we solve that equation? So for us, that has been building this community, making it really attractive for some of the super talented people to be really close to us. And that has given us an, a tremendous sounding board for us at Bootstrap Labs before we even make investments, but also tremendous uh, opportunity for our founders to tap in to get advice and support and even hire people. Um, and I'm, I'm still humbled by some of the people we're working with in this capacity and like, why, why, why do they spend time with us, right? These are, you know, some of the top people in the field in the world. Uh, but I realized we, we, through the model, we've been able with the community, with events and so forth, we've been able to actually give them a lot of value by being close to us. And it's that simple, like you, you, you make sure it's valuable uh, be more focused on the value you can bring than what you can extract. And, you know, the machine will start spinning, I think. Right? 
Sure. And so what, when was it, when did you start investing out of fund one, which with a, with a two and 20 pooled LPs pooled investment model? So uh, we warehoused investments in that fund 2016, right? Okay. We had a fund, like a small super angel fund. We're investing 15 and we started angel investments already then, but the pure AI focused fund, we warehoused a couple of investments that then the formal closing was like in January, 2017, right? So this is interesting to make sure listeners understand this. So VCs have this expression warehouse, like you stick a bunch of stuff in a warehouse, like a chair, a car, and say to people, do you want to buy everything that's warehoused in there? So especially in places like Hong Kong, in my experience, and believe me, I've been to every city you've named many times, you know, out there raising money with, with you know, good days and bad days. But in Hong Kong, there tends to be this pattern that Hong Kong family offices somehow arrive at the conclusion that they are better at venture capital than I am. And, and, and the relationships that I have with you and everybody else that I know going back decades mean nothing. And that they could make a better decision of what deal to invest in valuation terms, everything. So if you warehouse the deals and show it to, to the typical investor in Hong Kong, they like that. They like to see what they're getting into and they don't care where I got my MBA or where you did either, or what you did coding at the age of four means nothing to them. They just <laughs> wanna see the deals. So that can be an effective way, in my experience, you know, in Hong Kong, Singapore is much more like, this makes sense. I get it. You know, Nikolai, he shows you his deals. You show him your deals. You're both sharing due diligence, whatever. And, you know, here's the money. Diversify me across those deals that rather than do the one-on-one. So warehousing is a tactic. I think there's pluses and minuses to it. I mean, one of the things I like about warehousing is that the train is leaving the station. So you want to date me for nine years before something happens here. Um, you know, these deals in the warehouse will get funded, you know, by the summer at, at, at you know, no later than this date. So the train is leaving the station to get into this. And that gives you some sort of legitimate line in the sand. And, and the, the, the warehousing actually for the first institutional fund was really important to us, much more than I thought when we did it. And it wasn't as much as, and I know what you're saying, some family offices, like they, they think they take the deal first, so they're gonna look at those. It was just like, well, have you run this type of fund before? No. So what deals will you will you do? What, what, what will it look like? So some LPs that were you know, quite sophisticated, they, they didn't really look at it as like, oh, well, I'm gonna, but it's like, what, what, what is the sense of, you know, what type of things will you do in your fund? But not only that, what helped us incredibly, we warehoused a couple of deals, small tickets, and we carved out options to invest more as we closed the fund. And we we're pretty, uh, you know, diligent about doing that. And a number of the biggest LPs that came into that first fund never invested with us before. Many of them actually knew relationships to us, but, you know, some mutual friends, right? So introductions. Uh, they actually met some of those founders. So they could also say, well, why do you go to these guys? Why are they your investors, right? Right. Some of the warehouse deals we did were, for example, um, Roger.ai that we sold last year uh, to Fleetcore. So two brilliant founders, like serial entrepreneurs, they're incredible, uh, uh, Catherine and Kristen. And they're originally from Denmark, but they built another company, you know, in the U.S., sold it to uh, to Cisco called Assemblage. 
which part of the probably the webmark to see stack that we use when we do this right now, Christian invented that, right? So they're like really brilliant people. And we were the first ticket. Like Catherine called and said, hey, Nikolai, we're working on something new. Uh, and uh, and we invested. And, and and that was because we built a relationship with like these guys are partners to work with, right? Really, they they said like, we really want to work with you guys on, on this new thing we're building. So for our LPs to say, well, we already invested in this, and we're going to invest more money from the fund, and they can meet those serial entrepreneurs, really incredible. That was really valuable for for the LP from their perspective. Say, oh, this is what the founders think. Like it's not just talk that right. these right. So so that really helped us to be honest. That was a big. Uh, yeah, we, I mean, we, we started doing SPVs. So, you know, we had deal flow and we were saying like, th this is not going to sit in a warehouse waiting for you to get your checkbook out. If you're slow, here's a deal right now, come and see it. Here's our SPV. Don't circumvent us. You won't get in or try and we'll hear about it. And we were doing that. So that that's kind of warehousing with, with us. I, I, I really don't like warehousing. I, Myself, I don't like to ask a founder to not fully subscribe their round waiting for us to solve our problems. But um, what what we've done, and you've met Sato-san who invested in your fund that we introduced yeah. you to, it's an example of an LP from Tokyo who comes to visit for a week and will introduce him to our portfolio companies that we're already on the cap table. So we've already funded and introduce him to friends like yours saying, I would invest in this fund meet my friend Nikolai and Ben, um, and he gets to meet people and make his own decisions. So when that next opening comes in your fund, he can invest. When the next investment for that startup is, we can put him in an SPV and, and, and to invest alongside our fund. So we're calling those like sidecars. So it's it's not quite warehousing. Um, we've, we've looked at warehousing opportunity funds of saying, look, we're in 75 deals. If you take these 10, that's 250 million and not even trying to lead the round, but do a real double down and people can visit some of these guys because we were backing them very, very early. They'll take a meeting with one or two very big LPs that are going to write a 10, $20 million check. So I think yeah. that kind of warehousing has a little more dignity to it when you funded the guy in his pre-A and his A and his B, and now there's big rounds happening and they can understand the power of your Singapore network or Japan, Japanese network. And, you know, you're kind of adding value to the startup. You're adding value to- Oh, absolutely. You're growing, your, you're growing your AUM. There's a lot of issues with warehousing. And what, you know, one of the, 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 the biggest issues, of course, that timing with the founders, building enough allocation, you can end up making sure you get too little in the most exciting companies. So there's a lot of challenges. Um, we haven't done warehousing since. But as we, yeah. it was helpful for us at the end of the day, just looking oh, back yeah. in, in, in that first fund. And I know other LPs, even like, you know, some friends that are really, you know, they've been at, you know, really successful, uh, more, you know, established late stage firms. And then like, hey, this is not fun anymore. I want to go early stage. And they built like a large, massive angel portfolio. And then they just, they warehouse, quote unquote, but they, it's not like they were, you know, piecemeal tickets. They were real tickets. And then they pulled in like 10 companies into the first fund. And that was a no-brainer to just launch the fund with LP. Right. Um, so I mean, there's lots of ways to do this. Uh, it, it's kind of interesting as we, I know you've been really successful doing SPVs and, and we have been 
you know, looking at these, and we ended up saying we're really good at doing late stage SPVs with our LPs. Most of our LPs actually, you know, they don't really, it's too early, not for them. Like so BC stage, we don't really bother with SPVs before then at this point. And and what we've done, which you mentioned, I think is, and I think this is really important and a really great model that, that you've done as well. Uh, and, and, you know, we use our, our events and conferences to a large extent to do this, but so we plan our annual conference, we plan that with our annual LP meeting. So most of our LPs fly in and they stay a whole week and they get to meet all the founders and the ecosystem right. and, and, and so forth. And, and particularly just for them to meet the founders means that when there's a growth stage SPV a little bit later, then, hey, well, we know those fun. We know who those people are. That's right. So that, that, that's exactly all. right. Yeah, there'll be, I remember meeting her. I feel emotionally attached. Sometimes I've found out that we, my favorite event we do of the year is LP only, founders only. And then maybe you do a public inclusive event with you know everyone we know and introduce, that's how you, we introduce the, our guys to you. But um, when I find out when we're doing the SPV, they're like, oh yeah, actually, I actually had lunch with the CEO the day after your event and introduced them to them. And I brought them that, that account. And so I definitely want to be in the next SPV. And it's a totally different, I mean, I always say it's one thing to have a network, but you have to animate the network. You know, what are you doing yeah. to animate the network? And sometimes the SPV is even a way of, you can, we send out two major long, long emails to our LPs a year. That's exhaustively going through everything. And if they read it or don't, it doesn't really change what they're making. Whereas you send them an SPV memo of saying, hey, by Friday next week, you know, this is it. There's a better chance they're really going to read it and be like, all right, even if I don't invest, you, you have an ask se section that they're asking for introductions to big shipping companies that they can digitize. Well, I have a friend who owns one, you know, so they can make that yeah. intro because the network's being animated by that. More likely to get off his butt and do something if they had a glass of wine and, you know, had a barbecue Ooh. with them. Yeah. So tell us now what your current investment, you know, strategy framework looks like, like is AI, obviously, but maybe get more specific stage geography where you like to play. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, so uh, we predominantly focus on the Bay area, the U S like our mandate can go to the U S we can do Canada. We've done one Canadian company throughout the history of our AI funds. Uh, but that turned out really well. It was acquired last year, uh, but it's predominantly around the Bay Area. And of course, we're about to finalize the investment today, I think, or tomorrow in, uh, with a company in uh, Boston. Okay. Uh, so yeah, so that gives you sense. Um, and, and investment thesis, we, as, as kind of mentioned, we focused, we started to focus on artificial intelligence uh, a bit ahead of all the buzz. So I think we built a, a great position. We're very active in the field. We have access to a lot of deal flow and talent, but also learned a fair bit of how to invest in a pretty complex technology, right? And what does the team needs to look like to be competitive and all of those things. Uh, so we're looking for a very you know, particular thesis of what we want to see. Our, our sweet spot to entry is mature seed. Um, mature see seed. Mature seed. So it's not a couple of people with an idea. We want to see some traction and data points. Sometimes they can have a million dollars in annual revenue, sometimes zero. Uh, but we look a little bit more on the team's ability to execute on a large vision and, and the skills to support this. We, we predominantly tend to like 
teams where there's depth in both science and in AI, right? So the domain science, so we have companies in the computer vision space, uh, one that went actually public last year, but they're like, uh, the, the founders have, you know, like X, NASA, JPL, Lockheed, and they have, you know, degrees in quantum optics and things like that. Uh, and then they build uh, deep learning on silicon to build highly optimized sensor systems. So things like that, or in the health space where the mental health company, where, you know, there's a, one of the co-founders has, you know, almost 30 years experience in, 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 as a psychologist and design program for veterans affairs and so forth, right? So we, we, we have a predisposition for those types of, of, of teams. Um, and then we're looking for AI being vertically integrated. So we're less interested in, you know, the toolboxes that need a lot of services to be deployed, um, but rather the virtual integration, we capture a larger part of the value chain. Uh, and there's a few areas, like we look at health, we look at the financial infrastructure, we look at the digital infrastructure of cyber, uh, future work, climate and energy, and then mobility uh, as, as some of the main areas. Okay. And are, um, so in understanding how mature a company has to be, it could be pre-revenue of the, of the last 12 months, what percentage of your investments were pre-revenue? Um, so including, uh, the, there's one we did last week that's not announced. And there's one we're doing this week, not yet announced, of course. And then we did, so that will be, one was pre-revenue out of those three. Okay. And what is, what has been your investment pace recently and, and funds like ours evolve, you know, what you did on your first week on the job, maybe different than what you're doing now, you learned something, um, the hard way, what, um, how many investments, how many new investments do you make a year and how many investments are you making a year that are follow on investments into existing portfolio companies, even from a previous vintage fund of yours? Uh, yeah, that's, uh, I, I would say that we used to have a slightly higher pace of new portfolio companies than with the current fund. So we actually, so we saw that we have a pretty high C to A round conversion ratio, right? Yeah. Uh, our current funds are not like the prior funds are not a full maturity yet, but we are like 52%, I think C to A which is twice the average for the US. And I think we'll hit 60 something before we're done. And, and with that in mind, what we did with the latest fund was that we actually narrowed the portfolio. So we're deploying a little bit more capital in fewer companies. So that also means we will invest in slightly fewer amount of companies. So I expect it to be maybe three new portfolio companies a year. And then we do a lot of follow-on investments in those companies. Okay, so how many, what's the level of diversification you build into one vintage of a fund? So it's, it's, of course, things get, when you get into the nitty gritty details, it gets complicated, but we have a core portfolio, which is actually 15 companies. 15. We've got to build, yeah, a fairly large ownership in those 15, because we saw that in the best performing companies, we were able to do that in a prior fund. So now we have a little bit more money to actually increase that ownership in the best performing companies. What we do have on top of that is that we do have a pre-seed strategy that's very select. Right, and that's like serial entrepreneurs that we invested in before, uh, or we know quite well. Uh, and then we have a venture studio model that we have a mandate for in the fund to to create 
100% proprietary deal flow tapping into this broader community of talent around thematic areas uh, using AI. Right? So when you, and, and, and the same LP that's in fund three now is getting into the venture studio stuff as well as everything else. So it's all, it's all of, to make it simple, it's all aligned. So the LPs invest, you know, in, in the, uh, in the main fund. And then the venture studios are funded from that fund as a feeder strategy. Some of the strategic corporate LPs we are inviting directly to our studios as well. Uh, but that's, you know, they need to invest in a main fund to align financially with all the investors. Okay. And when you start a company incubating with the studio model, um, what ownership does Bootstrap have at the time that it's founded? Are you recruiting? Are you recruiting managers to be the CEO in this case? So we're tapping into the broader community we have of people to become founders in those companies, right? So we we map out you know certain areas where we see white spots on the map to build something big, and we don't see we we our preference is to invest in external deal flow, but if we don't see something that really packs yeah. on some important yeah. areas, it, it's a candidate for doing this, and then we bring in you know the serial entrepreneurs in our network. Some that sold their companies, we bring them back. Some of them this becomes a great platform to kind of build a little bit more scale and, and foster get to building a new company, right? And then the fund takes, you know, large pre or, you know, investments, uh, a decently good position in these companies, but the rest of the team takes the bulk of it, of course. And then, you know, we, we spin it out and from the studio and keep funding it from the fund. Okay, so you would own less than 50% at the time that you've recruited the team okay. and funded it. Oh yeah, the team owns over 50%. Okay, okay. And- But it's a small part of what we do. So it's just a feeder strategy into the main investment. And, and as an entry point into a company, so the first time you invest in a company, so it's a new company for you to bring into your overall portfolio, what's the latest stage that you guys are happy to be entering at? How far along? That is mature seed. We don't really enter after that with the current funds. Okay, so you wouldn't you wouldn't do a Series A as a first bite in. You'd be before A a hundred percent of the time. I the type of companies that we like to invest in, like they, they, it's I haven't seen an A round with less than seventy to ninety million dollar quid. Whereas we can in our mature seed cycle invest at anywhere between six and twelve million dollar quid, and sometimes those A rounds that markup happens within. 18 months, right? Sure. Uh, well, these so days even have, faster, probably. Yeah, sometimes even faster, sometimes 12 months, right? And I, I, so I think we found a sweet spot that we think is really attractive. We understand well where we think the you know, risk reward is, is incredibly compelling, right? That's where we say mature seed. It's not just, you know, the wider range and, you know, what we call mature seed is, I think, probably what we would call in terms of a risk burn down and so forth. You call an A round fifteen years ago. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean the, <laughs> I mean the funds got bigger after the 0108 downturns, and what is being called Series A these days would have been a Series B slash C in the '90s and the yeah. early 2000s, and yet the cost of launching a startup, you know, is gotten cheaper with AWS and all this kind of stuff. You don't need a silicon get. You know, you don't need a fifty thousand dollar SGI box to host your website like oh. i did i had a sunbox but you know yeah. uh, and you know the entry level silicon graphics machine 
there were half a million dollars to run uh, virtual reality, right? So yeah, that's why it's purple. It's saying this is like the emperor's box. I remember. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I knew guys with SGI boxes on their desks just to be like, you know, I drive a very tacky Bentley. I wouldn't be seen dead driving a Bentley, but you know, it's, it's someone else's jam, right? Um, well, okay, so let's talk about valuations a little bit. So if a company had 100K of MRR, and so it's a mature seed, or I would call that late seed, uh, before the pandemic, what would the pricing valuation look like on that? And what's it looking like maybe in the peak of 2021 and where are we now on valuation? So share some expertise of where the market is since you're right on the market for your stage. Yeah, and, and I would have to say the, the round, like the, the round, the, the pricing you end up or, or the valuation you end up investing is of course not only controlled by the market, but also uh, your slice of the market, your specialization, and maybe your position in that market gives you some negotiating power. Uh, that's at least what we see. Um, so, so I, I, I think it's not a it's not a fair market in that sense. Uh, but that said, uh, valuations were definitely rising quickly before the pandemic, um, and I think to unhealthy levels in a sense. Not only for for investors, but also for founders, because you know I've been a founder over the years, and if you raise on a too high valuation, that needs to be defended when, you know, there's a lot of value to build into that before your next round and so forth, right? So- Or, or even I, exit, or even exit. Or even an exit, right? So I think things were getting an unhealthy level to some extent. Like uh, when, when you see uh, a first raise, first money, $40 million at a $100 million post, that's not sound. And I saw some of those popping up on the radar our intros from people before the pandemic. Okay, great entrepreneurs, but that doesn't make sense, right? Yeah, so, I mean, they're going to spend that money in two years anyway, and they're not ready to hire biz dev people when there's no product yet. I mean, it's just like, it's burned through money and challenged to even have a flat to up round of the next one and yeah. limited limited buyers. And, and the most, you know, qualified serial entrepreneurs I know they raise less money in the beginning. They raise what they need to prove out the next set of, you know, milestones and so forth. So all this said, I think, you know, we're going to unhealthy levels. And I think in the first six months of the pandemic, a lot of founders that were not well-established, they struggled a little bit to raise. That pushed down valuations a little bit. I think they're coming up again. I think people are getting very comfortable making Zoom investments. Um, I think all of us have, you know, we need to figure it out, of course, right? But I still think like we have seen these go up and down and our valuation has not fluctuated that much. I think we have a pretty good average entry point, but but I, I think you need to earn it, right? As, as, a, as a venture capitalist, like your money is a commodity, right? So you need to, it's like, the founders need to know why you're there. Why are you a partner for them? And then you can change that conversation a little bit to make sure that, you know, guys, Let's maybe have a little bit more sound evaluation and then come back and raise a higher valuation. We have more money to deploy. Uh, yep. So we try to often work through a little bit of a funding plan until they get to the A round. And that helps managing the valuation a little bit, right? Find a balance where the target ownership for us is a fund and for the founders to, to not be diluted too much work out. 
So when you're investing in a seed, mature seed, are you putting up half the round typically, or are you putting in less than that? Or are you trying to we, do we, an in-between round and just do that round and then say on a blended rate? We typically lead. Uh, we are not really good at following. So we typically lead around. Sometimes we co-lead, so lead or co-lead. That means we are we're anywhere between, you know, the next biggest to the biggest investor in a round, depending on co-lead, like the dynamic varies a little bit. Uh, but we usually in the initial round, one of the bigger investors in, in the mature seed cycle. And then we have a fair bit of follow-on capital before the A round and in, in, in between round investments and so forth. Okay. Yeah, I think in between rounds makes sense. I like saying to a portfolio company, look, I know you see your friends raising big rounds and you think you should raise a big round. I'm not saying you shouldn't, but if you look at where you're at now, let me just do two and a half million in right now at this valuation and you'll get your 20, 25 million round in Q4 a hell of a lot easier when you can hire some people, close this, close this, close this, and you can just very low risk raise that next one. And on a blended rate, you know, we're, val we're not dead weight, you know, we're bringing as much, a lot more than money to the table. So I like an in-between round. Yeah. Uh, and, look, and, the big know, funds, like what, one thing, Nikolai, you and I have is one of our problems that you and I do not have right now is how to deploy 1.2 billion in 24 months, which yeah. is the problem that some of our friends have. And so that's true. writing that check, that's doing that in-between round works for us and for the founder, I think sometimes. I think it worked really well, right? It, it allows you to to balance how much money as a founder you take take on with the risk and the validation you have, right? Because overdoing it, I I've never really seen it work out well, right? Yeah. Those are rare rare circumstances. Right? Yeah, I, I like it in between round. If we made an early investment, there's not a ton of people on the cap table, so we can very efficiently say, let's preempt a round right now put some money into the company. Anyone who wants to follow has their pro ratas. Let us know what you want. We'll get it done. And then the, the company can focus on building and not the whole dog and pony dance on a major distraction of a big 20 million fundraise on a valuation that you need to grow into yeah. in an inflationary market. Exactly. So, so that, you know, they can be focused on execution and actually building value. Uh, but but also, what I, like I tell our founders, like when we come in, if is we you want a, a partner that that is uh, think you are really really important right like when we come into a company we don't have that many portfolio companies right and and the money we come in with is really important for our funds the part you know decent piece of the fund even our first investment so they all matter and and uh, so for us like that's our focus so how do we support them to get to the next level if you get somebody run a you know 1.5 billion dollar fund and they write you a $10 million ticket is usually written off when they write the ticket because it's a sourcing strategy. You're not yet important. You're an option for the future. Uh, so we tell our founders, like, think of each stage as a growing company. Find the best partner where you are super important and they're there to support you to get to the next level. I think that's a good way to think about it as a founder. Yeah, I mean, a $50,000 you know, $50, $50, check from Bessemer is not something they can walk away from without and tarnish their reputation. A hundred million dollar investment from Bessemer, that's someone's reputation on the line. Yeah, yeah. very, very different, you know, for that specific 
you know, investor. So, so with valuations, give us some kind of answer. What, what did pre-money, you, you, I think you said six to 12. What, what did pre-monies look like in 2019 to 2020 to now? Like what's a range of what you're seeing on the early so, side? So I, I, what I can tell you factually, where we are average entry point valuation in the first two AI funds, which were kind of fully deployed just before the pandemic, uh, we're $11 million entry point average. Right. Okay. Um, I think we are still close to that. I think it maybe it's gone up a little bit. I would estimate, I don't know the exact number, but I would say the things we're doing now with a new fund, we're maybe somewhere between, you know, 10 and 15 on average entry point. But yeah. we also coming in slightly later with a little bit more money. So, you know, but, but it hasn't moved in reality from the, the investment we're making that much. I mean, I, I mean, to challenge that with my set of experience recently, I'm seeing uh, attempts to get higher valuations for seed deals. And then a company with a little bit of traction and revenue starts thinking, oh boy, finally we're here now. Even if they've been working for years and years and years, they get like three months of explosive revenue and think time to raise an enormous round to replicate this tiny bit of you know, data and the valuations have gone really big. And then some of the almost later stage companies thought they were going to repeat the 100 million plus raises of the summer. But all of a sudden we're getting a lot of pushback and they start saying, we're going to sell 20%. That's constant. And they start reducing the size of the round. And so the valuation was just dropping as much as they were dropping. Yeah. But as entry point, I'm talking about what I would say absolutely happened and we're seeing too is that the curve from you know late seed into A has become much sharper, right? So the, the size of the, the valuation of A realm has definitely gone up, especially the, the things we we invest in. Right. Uh, right. It's more commonly $70 million plus pre-money on an A round in our companies now than a couple of years ago. For sure. Yeah. I mean, and like what that really means is that if you invest in a company at a 70 million pre to make a simple 10x return, you'd have to get liquid at a 700 million exit with zero funding between today and then, yeah. which is not gonna happen. So not only do you have to exit for 700 million, you really gotta be north of a billion. And then there's, well, what's the list of companies my banker LP buddies would show this company to, to exit at a 2 billion or a 1.2 billion compared to if we could sell it for 250 million. It's just a whole different set of buyers, whole different set of multiples. Um, I think every VC loves making money in a bubble and is secretly wishing for a market correction to you know, be able to sell the company for a smaller amount of money and make a 50X return. That's more than, you know, a 10X is not enough for early, if you ask me. I agree. Yeah. You know, um, so talk about... Um, bringing corporates into your business. So what what do the corporates get from you that maybe they don't get from every other VC fund? And what do the founders get out of this? And how are you practically making communication happen between a corporate and a startup? So we have a, a, a few, um, we call them strategic investors, strategic LPs, which are larger corporates. Uh, and we try to, to work with them around these thematic areas around AI that we care about. 
so, so that's some thought that goes into picking who we work with. And, and with that, we, what we try to do is bring a lot of the knowledge or the things we learn on the front lines we're doing, our constant screening of deal flow and other things. So we, we, we do sit down uh, about once a month uh, or at least once a quarter, a little bit depending and share a little bit more deeper insights with uh, our strategic investors. Uh, so we give them a little bit of a peek into what we learned from our continuous deal flow vetting. And what we, we realized that our lens as an investor is of course, extremely narrow. And a lot of the things we see in our deal flow has a lot of value for the, for, for our corporate LPs. Like there's a lot of interesting things where uh, they can engage with pilot opportunities. This might be a great innovation, a great company, but it doesn't fit that narrow investment plans where we think it can, you know, basically return the whole fund at a minimum, which is kind of what you need to go for in my book. Um, so, so we do share a lot of that. Um, and uh, that's a lot of the, those strategic LPs, they really appreciate that. And of course, when we're not in a pandemic world, uh, this whole community and the conference and all those things give a lot of access to the broader community and to meet them in person and network and spend a lot of time with the founders. Uh, in our portfolio uh, is is valuable to those types of investors. And do they uh, do some or all of them operate their own corporate venture capital business units? Are they investing directly in startups too? And this is kind of part of that strategy? It's actually a little bit different. Some of them have very well built out and thought through corporate venture uh, strategies uh, with allocated money into those. And then they invest in our fund to be able to build better reach, especially we are usually a little bit earlier than them. And we have our specialization in AI field. Um, so, so that's part of that. Some of them actually don't. And they, they are building more of a balance sheet investment just to be closer for, the, for them to be learn more about the AI field and what happens around us and the community. I mean, there's literally not a single corporate that should not be paying attention <laughs> to AI right now, right? I mean, everybody's a candidate, everybody. Campbell's suit. My, my message is if you don't figure this out, you will be gone, right? You know, you'll right. be disrupted and out of business in a not too distant future. So either you figure out how to be part of it and bring that innovation in, acquire companies and inform yourself. And I think, you know, looking at the ones that are, that's the type of things that they're looking for. If they get knowledgeable enough, they will be able to both find targets and know what to look for to start to acquire this type of innovation into their core business. Yeah, yeah. And talk a little bit about what you're seeing in the exit market. So with, with uh, you know, the world went into shock in April, March, April of 2020, where are we now? And, and, and what, what's your lens? Tell you. So I think for, for our, you know, specialization, the AI field has been exploding. And, and I actually see that during the pandemic, there was a clear uptick of interest from incumbent companies to buy AI innovation and, and, and you know, innovation companies. So we had, uh, we sold four companies last year alone uh, from our first AI fund. Um, right. And uh, these are, you know, the buyers are predominantly public companies. Uh, there was one of the exits was a company that's not yet public, but planning to go public. But a few of them were actually, or the choirs were, you know, well-established, not the Silicon Valley technology innovation companies buying another, you know, startup. 
uh, in a later in an earlier cycle, but it was actually incumbent companies like uh, Fleet Core acquiring Roger uh, or Pega System that acquired Curious. Uh, so it's pretty well established companies in 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 their field, right? In payments for Fleet Core and and, and uh, uh, call center infrastructure and so forth for Pega System. Okay. Okay. And I'll have a closing question for you, unless there's anything else you want to talk about. Uh, how do you define AI? I've heard people joke that this is artificial, artificial intelligence. Like it's not real AI. How do you, what's the definition of AI to a black belt expert like yourself? So first I'll say artificial intelligence is actually not a great term, but it's something that everybody relates to. A better term is of course machine learning. Um, and, but most people don't relate to it. So we're using AI or artificial intelligence for that reason. Uh, yeah, uh, we can debate this for a long time and say that, well, how can we talk about artificial intelligence if you don't really know what intelligence is, right? But I think I would put it this way. We are today, we're eight, we have enough compute power and knowledge combined and a lot of the algorithms are not new. They just throw in a massive amount of compute power on this problem to actually build systems that not only learn, but they can all actually, through reinforcement learning, actually learn by themselves. We basically tell them what are good outcomes and what are bad outcomes. And here's you know, some information to study upon and figure out and learn from. We're getting closer to the point where the analogy is very close to that the fact that we give kids textbooks in school and we try to guide them what's good and what's bad, right? We are training systems and we're talking about deep learning, which is what where it gets really exciting, if you ask me. Uh, we can't even afterwards devise how the systems work, right? We actually don't know, really. This is not the computer systems that we use to program where we say, if this, then do that, right? It's not a state machine with rules and algorithms in that sense. We actually need to train them with the data. We can make up the data called synthetic data. That's a massive trend and something to really keep on top of because that's how you win in the space. We can have another session about that for a couple of hours. But, but you know, you really need to train the systems and you need to guide them what's good and what's bad. That's how you design these deep learning systems or actually build a model, right? Um, and that's fundamentally different from how we traditionally build computer system or computer software. Um, if that is intelligence, good question. But are we able to, to replicate cognitive tasks that humans did before, but unparalleled scale? Um, and, and uh, that also means we're, we're starting to be able to do things or actually empower people with AI or machine learning to do things they couldn't do before. Um, that's not a clear answer, but you know, this is a- No, it's cool. Yeah. yeah, I mean, um, I was talking to one of our, I had one of our, um, you probably know Kindy, Ryan Welsh from Kindy. It's, uh, it's like, there's so much AI in it, it basically could, you know, make Google go bankrupt. Not that this will ever happen, but like the idea of just doing text search compared to this sort of natural language processing and just deep level, it's learning from itself and training on your data. I think of it like when you see one of those movies where you're in that Japanese transformer. So there's like a human inside of this monster thing. And so he can 
he's like 100 feet tall and he can punch through walls it, it actually makes the human a superhuman you know with what they're able to do with that technology compared to how many documents can a human read today and immediately find the interest rate in every single convertible note you invested in 10 years ago you should be able to like kind of speak to your computer like hey find every convertible note with an interest rate you know you know of this and it goes right through that you know what was the share price and how many shares did i invest in that company in 2014 you know and just like not make mistakes and you know just just you're a superhuman yeah. at that and, point right and- and we have a portfolio company that does exactly that, right? Uh, the, the, it's called Prian. The, uh, oh, Prian, Igor Jablikov. Yeah, yeah Igor, Igor is an LP in our fund. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so I actually, know I, that, but that's yeah, yeah, yeah. He was, he was, Igor is the founder of Yap, which yeah. was acquired by Amazon, which when I first met him, he told me we're, uh, what was it? Uh, language recognition company. And I'm like, what? Like Dragon Software? That's old news. Then he explained to me what it really was. I'm like, oh, damn, dude, that's life changing. He sold it to Amazon and that became the core of my whole house will start beeping Alexa. So like Alexa wouldn't exist without Igor making Yap. Yeah. Pri- pri- yeah. And Alexa, we were the stop. first investment. <laughs> we were the first investment prior. Well, well, that's great. That's great. I mean, you're in there with Steve Case, Jim Breyer, all those guys. Yeah. So I, ironically, uh, the value, you know, he was hiring engineers at such high salaries in the very beginning. And um, uh, although we're really good friends and I speak to him frequently, we invested in Kindy, which you know, is a bit uh, of a conflict. But, um, you know, I love what he's doing. I think that's an amazing company. It deserves to be a multi, multi billion dollar. I think it will. I mean, he's amazing, and the talent that he he's able to to build around him is out of this world. So there's a there's another one of our portfolio companies that when when you were talking them them you know there's an interesting tidbit here. It's a, a, one of our we have a mental health company called Sibley, and they use a combination of people and machine learning to to run their whole you know coaching model. That's the core of what they do build using motivational interviewing. But what's interesting is actually not that and the build scale and all that is actually what they figured out was that by introducing machine learning as part of this equation, they were able to actually increase the quality of the mental health care. So it's not just, this is not about scale and so forth. It's actually, you can build consistency that humans really can't do. Like in, in, in this field, humans introduce a tremendous amount of bias that can be really destructive for the subject. Whereas you can use machine learning to mitigate that. And when you build an augmented model of machine learning with humans, it can become incredibly powerful. It's both scalable and you increase quality, but you also get these edge cases that only humans really can deal with, at least today, right? Yeah. Well, these are examples of uh, we are living in a cave, like cavemen, and we're about to go out into the light and become enlightened and stop being cavemen with how we do all these things. But Nikolai, great to see you. Uh, I look forward to your next real world event. Give me lots of advance notice. I, I'll help as much as I can in getting the best people there and speakers and all that jazz. And uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and uh, look forward to co-investing with you some more very soon. Andrew, thank you so much. My pleasure. Looking forward okay. to talking to you again. Bye, my friend. Yeah. Bye.